O Lord, revive Thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. There has been a lot of talk recently in our land about the subject of revival. And I'm not going to deal again today with the subject I dealt with last Lord's Day. I think I covered the subject sufficiently about the so-called Asbury University revival. I just want to add one thing to that. Uh, Some folks have expressed some reticence to condemn all of that, thinking that perhaps it may be somehow a move of the Holy Spirit. Everything that I've seen thus far connected with it leads me to conclude that it is nothing of the sort. And someone sent me a video just very recently of one of the final chapel services before their hiatus that they were taking from the ongoing revival services. One of the staff at Asbury College was speaking and he uttered a statement which I consider to be blasphemous. When he was telling the students that Jesus is not only no longer in the grave, but also he said, and I quote, I can hardly bring myself to say it. His hiney is not off the throne worrying about you. Can you imagine anyone calling themselves a Christian? Referring in those terms to the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. I feel like I need to wash my mouth out after even saying it. There are a lot of things in history that have gone down as revivals that were nothing of the sort. And this is another example of it, I'm afraid. However... Having said that, the subject of revival is one that ought to be of great interest to every true believer. Not least is this so in a day of apostasy, in a day of spiritual declension such as we live in. Because when the need is so evidently great for a revival, the subject ought to take on not less but more significance. That's why I feel that I should again preach perhaps more than one message, on the subject of revival. Because while it's all very well talking about what revival is not, we do need to think about what revival is, because there is such a thing as revival. The Bible teaches us about the subject of revival. And there are lessons that you and I can learn from revival occurrences in history, not only biblical history, but throughout church history. It is a large topic. It is an amazingly broad subject to deal with. I couldn't tell you the number of books that I have in my library that deal with the subject of revival. And therefore, this subject does give any preacher a lot of scope. But at the same time, because of the day that we live in, preachers like myself ought to feel particularly inadequate in some ways to speak about revival. Why is that? Well, simply because much of what we have to say about it is second-hand information. It's what we've read about. It's what we've even heard about from others. I've lived long enough to know some older men in the faith who experienced what I would consider to be revival. There was an old man that I knew in Scotland, the Reverend Charles Main, Charlie Main. He told me about preaching at a very famous spot that I know very well, near where my parents used to live, in Bangor County down on the seafront. And he told me, preaching in the open air there, that it was nothing, it was nothing to see 30 to 40 grown men kneeling there on their face with tears running down their faces, seeking the Lord for salvation. Now, if we were to see one or two people doing that, we would say it was revival. 
I really believe that what he was describing was an awakening of some kind. But what we hear from others, what we read about, is something that it would be really wonderful for us to be able to talk about from personal experience, wouldn't it? It would be nice to be able to say, I was there when it happened, when I saw this revival come. To be able to talk about what our own eyes have seen and our own ears have heard, to be able to relate personal experiences of tremendous movings of God's power, I would certainly count that a thrill and a delight to be able to do that, but I can't. I have seen some things that, in hindsight, might have been close to revival in terms of half nights of prayer and things of that nature. Way back in my early life in the Ravenhill Church, when I was a little boy, it used to be a regular occurrence that 10, 12, 15 people would remain behind on a Sunday night after a service to seek the Lord. And the people in our church used to come every week expecting to see conversions. Expecting it. It wasn't something that was out of the ordinary or was not the norm. It was the norm. In fact, it would be looked upon as a really unusual thing not to see somebody coming to the Lord of a, of a Lord's Day evening. But we don't want to just talk about revival and read about revival. Surely we ought to want to experience it. And although we may not be able to say that we have experienced real revival, as far as a broad, widespread move of God in our community or in our nation, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't or that we cannot preach about it. It doesn't mean that we can't encourage others to think about it and to pray for it. Notice with me a verse in Psalm 44. It's a really interesting text, this. Psalm 44, verse 1. Listen, we have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what work Thou didst in their days in the times of old. And that certainly would be an, a, 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 an explanation of some of the books on revival that I have. You could sum up those books in that way. We've heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. Thrilling accounts. And it's most profitable for Christians to consider therefore the whole question of revival. But especially in relation to what the scriptures teach on the matter. Because frankly there's a lot of false teaching abroad on the topic of revival and revivals. But I, I think I could describe the word of God as a handbook on the subject of revival. And every teaching connected with revival should be and can be brought to the touchstone of Holy Scripture. What saith the Lord? What does the Bible teach about these things? We can look at the Scriptures. We can also look at the story of God's providence in history. And the revival histories that have been penned are so valuable in learning about revival and in creating, let me say, a yearning for revival. One of the revivals I read about in history involved a minister every week reading excerpts about past revivals to his congregation. Psalm 85 verse 6 is a wonderful text. It's still in the Bible. It hasn't become obsolete. It's not a verse that no longer applies. It doesn't belong, supposedly, to another dispensation. This is God's Word still today. And this is a prayer that you and I can take upon our lips as Christians and say to the Lord, Wilt thou not revive us again 
that thy people may rejoice in thee. What a wonderful text that is. If ever there was a revival text in the Bible, this is it. But as we look at the scripture and this theme of revival, we discover that there are many different terms that are used to define it. And I have called this message today, Revival Defined. Or you might say, Revival Explained. It's always necessary to define your terms when you're dealing with any topic. It's essential in order to avoid confusion, ambiguity, even ignorance. We have to have good, sound and biblical reasoning and use biblical terms. And we have to clearly define what we mean when we use those words or those terms. So in speaking of revival, or speaking about a revival, we need to take great care. In this text, I want you to notice that there's a specific term used by the psalmist to describe a particular work. The prayer is, Wilt thou not revive us? I read Habakkuk 3 verse 2 because the term is used there as well. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. It's the same Hebrew word. It literally could be translated to make alive or to recover or to repair or restore or to make whole again that which has been split into pieces. Revive. To make alive, to recover, to repair, to restore, to make whole again that which has been split into pieces. It's actually synonymous with another biblical term you find in the Psalms as well. And that's the term quickening. Quickening means to make alive or to revitalize and renew life. The Oxford Dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, defines revival as, quote, a reawakening of religious fervor. Now, obviously by that definition, a lot of people would include spurious revivals because they'll say, well, there's a, there's a reawakening of some kind of religious fervor. But in the biblical sense, this is exactly what it is. And when we consider this term revival and other like terms that are used to describe the same thing, we can come to a true and a very clear understanding of what it is. David prayed, revive us again. And some might wonder, well, what was David praying for? What was he asking for? What does it mean? Wilt thou not revive us again? What is that? How can we define Revival. Well, I want to notice some of the terms that are used to describe revival, that explain it. A couple at least today I want us to consider. First of all, let us think about this. Revival is a spiritual work. It's a spiritual work. It's not fleshly. It's not man-made. It's something that's spiritual. And as we read the scripture and think about revival, and read about revival, it is often seen to be an outpouring of the Spirit of God. Let me show you some scriptures that illustrate this. Look at Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to go through some of these verses quite quickly, so if you have a pen, a bit of paper, you can just jot these down. If you don't turn them up as quickly as I do, that's fine, because I have my notes, I have my preparation. And I get there quickly because of that. You may be a little bit behind. If you're lagging behind, I don't want you to miss what I'm going to say. So just jot it down. You can look at it later if you can't find it right away. But Isaiah 44, verse 3. Look at this. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. Now what's he talking about? Is he referring to rain? Is he talking about just 
precipitation? No, because the second part of the verse says, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. So the second part of the verse explains the first part of the verse. When the Lord says, I'll pour water and I will pour out floods on the dry ground, He's talking about pouring out His Spirit and pouring out His blessing. It's a spiritual work. Ezekiel 34 then, and this is something that gives rise to the wording in some of our hymns. Ezekiel 34 and verse 26. These words are actually directly quoted in hymns, even some that were sung here. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. There shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of love. There shall be seasons refreshing, sent from the Father above. This is revival. Then you have those words in Joel, chapter 2. Joel, the Old Testament minor prophet, so-called because of their size, not because of their lack of importance. Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my Spirit. And notice again the terminology. Pouring out of the Spirit. It's like precipitation, like rain, showers, floods. And this is a scripture that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. That needs to be noted. That needs to be understood. Many people want to limit this to the very end times. But notice what it says in Acts chapter 2 from verse 15. Peter is preaching. He's quoting from the Old Testament, obviously, because that's the Bible they had. Acts chapter 2 from verse 15. These are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that. Notice it. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So in other words, here's the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And it shall come to pass, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Pentecost was, in fact, a great revival. It was a spiritual work. And as we think about revival being an outpouring, a raining down, if you like, this is a theme that is found in many other scriptures as well. For example, Hosea, the Old Testament minor prophet, Hosea chapter 10, and verse number 12. You'll notice what it says there. Daniel, Hosea. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He come, notice it, and rain righteousness upon you. There's the same analogy. The raining down. This time he's speaking about righteousness or holiness. And you know when anything is described as a revival and it doesn't result in righteousness and holiness, it's not a revival. Because revival is a raining down of righteousness. Furthermore, it is described in the Bible as God himself coming down. God coming down. Psalm 72 Verse number 6. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. Again, you see this analogy. 
Don't you love it when it's been dry? And you go out there and you cut the grass and then the rain comes on. Oh, oh, the smell is so beautiful. It's so fresh. That's what it's, it's talking about here. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass. As showers that water the earth. Again, the great prayer of Isaiah 64 illustrates this. My late mother used to pray this prayer all the time. I remember as a little boy being with her in the living room and she'd be on her knees beside the sofa and she used to actually pray this prayer out loud. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. Notice this. That thou wouldest come down. Revival is God visiting his people. Revival, furthermore, is the reawakening of life and growth in the desert place. Again, we're back to this thought of showers and refreshing. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Why will that happen? Because of the refreshing that has come. Revival, furthermore, is a restoration to God. Again, the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. And the very first verse, it says there, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for He hath torn and He will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. Come and let us return unto the Lord. Verse 2 says, after two days will he revive us. And the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And of course revival. Revival is that coming down of the rain. Hosea goes on to say in verse 3 of chapter 6. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. And he shall come. He shall come unto us. As the rain. As the latter and former rain unto the earth. Special visitations of God. And as you come to the New Testament. You discover that this kind of terminology is used again. In the book of Acts chapter 3. Peter is preaching. And in verse 19, he says, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. All of these terms are synonymous with revival. And they illustrate that revival is a spiritual work. A revitalization, a reanimation, if you like, of that which is already living, but is in a state of declension. I used the word last week, comatose. If someone is comatose or in a coma, they're not dead, but they do need to be revived. And revival is a renewing and a reformation of a comatose church. It's the Lord making bare His arm and working in extraordinary power, both on Christian and non-Christian alike. Someone defined revival this way. A renewed interest in religion after a period of indifference and decline and the awakening into more active and living energy, those religious feelings, habits and principles which previously existed but which had sunk into comparative dormancy. And isn't that what has happened in our land? We have indifference and we have decline. There have been in the past, in this very part of the U.S., feelings, habits and principles that have sunk into comparative dormancy. People just have no interest in the things of God in general. They'd rather go to a flea market and sit in a bingo hall on a Sunday morning than go to a church. 
Now revival, strictly speaking, has to do with believers. And regeneration has to do with unbelievers. Revival, the saints. Regeneration, the sinners. Because when you're talking about something that has fainted, that is comatose, is in a deep slumber, but it's still alive, it needs to be revived. It doesn't need to be resurrected. It needs to be revived. That's the believer who has grown cold. However, that which is dead requires resurrection. That's why the salvation of a soul is such an amazing thing. It's a miracle. Because it is literally, spiritually, a resurrection. Why do we say that? Because as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 puts it, you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Not comatose. Not badly injured. Dead in trespasses and sins. You can go to a mortuary. You can hold under the nose of a dead body the most wonderful smelling food. And there will be no reaction. You could stick a pin in that body, there will be no reaction. Why? Because it's dead. It's dead. Why do people not respond to the gospel? Because they're dead. Why will they not come in view of the most emotional appeals to trust the Savior? Because they're dead in trespasses and sins. They need resurrection. They need something done to them by the Holy Spirit that produces life. It's called regeneration. It's called the new birth. It's called being born again. Remember how Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind bloweth where it listeth, that means it goes wherever it wants to. But you can't tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. It's an invisible work done in the heart. But Jesus said, marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. And that word again literally means from above. Born from above. There has to be a work of grace wrought by the Spirit of God for someone to come to the Lord. And that's why you and I as Christians pray for the souls of sinners. Why do we pray for them? If they could just come to the Lord any time they liked and turn salvation on and off like a faucet, why would we pray to God whenever they can do it themselves? Why would we ask the Lord to work in their hearts when they've already got the power to come to the Lord at any time according to some people's theology? See, the fact is they don't have that power. That's why we pray, Lord... Quicken this person. Bring these people to yourself. Save them by thy grace. We recall Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, the Lord showed him a vision of a whole big mighty former army of dead bones. Men that were lying there dead but past dead there were just a pile of bones everywhere. And then the Lord said to Ezekiel, look at these bones. And Ezekiel asked the Lord, he says, Lord, can these... Or, or the Lord said to him, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And the prophet said, O Lord, thou knowest. <laughs> I don't know, Lord, you know. Can they live? So then what happened? Ezekiel called to the four winds, to the Spirit, come upon these bones that they may live. And what happened? Suddenly there was flesh that appeared on these bones, and sinews. And then, there they still were, laying in the valley. But the breath came. And it says, when the breath came, they stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. You know the old Negro spiritual? Leg bone connected to the thigh bone. That's where that's from. 
That's where that's from, Ezekiel 37. That's what happened. The bones were all joined together. The flesh came on, but there was still no life. And the life entered in, and they stood up an exceeding great army. Now, that was a prophetic vision of what God would do for Israel. But it's also a representation of what happens in salvation. It's a resurrection. If you're not saved, friend, you need to be raised from the dead. You need to be given new life. Old Henry Scougal called it the life of God in the soul of man. But revival is often employed to indicate the wholesale conversion of the lost to Christ. It is a legitimate use of the term, I would say. But it's more important and it's more accurate to speak of a spiritual awakening when it comes to people being saved in large numbers. But in a revival of religion, if we want to give it that title, we have in view both the quickening of believers into greater love for God and more holy living, and the conversion of sinners in unusual numbers. That's what happens in a revival. So revival, as a definition, as a term expressive of a pouring out of spiritual blessing upon both saint and sinner alike. It is a spiritual work. A spiritual work where there is the spiritual life quickened among Christians and the securing of conversions in unwanted numbers. In short, an enlargement and an advancement of the work of grace in the regenerate, but the imparting of divine life to those hitherto dead in trespasses and sins. But let me emphasize again, while revival always is accompanied by evangelism, that is, gospel preaching among the lost, evangelism is not revival. Here in the U.S., reference is often made to the holding of revival meetings. And some churches will tell you, revival will commence on Wednesday night at 7.30. That's the result of confusion. Because we can have evangelism without seeing revival. We know that only too well. If I wanted a proper definition of this, I would say evangelism is what the church does for God. Revival is what God does for the church. And friends, that's what we need today, is for God to do something for the church. Revival is a great spiritual work, and it produces spiritual results. One other thing, revival is a sovereign work. Look at our text. Wilt thou not revive us again? He doesn't say, Lord, would you help us to revive ourselves? He doesn't say, Lord, we're going to have a revival. He says, Lord, wilt thou not revive us again? It's a prayer. There are terms that we've already considered here in the message that show us clearly that revival is a work of God. That's what it is. Revival, if you like, is a grace from God sovereignly bestowed, just like salvation. It is of the Lord. One old preacher put it like this, Revival is man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. What a great definition that is. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. See, when God comes in revival, men go to, men's names go into the background. The personalities of revival disappear. People are not taken up with men and their ministries. They're taken up with the Lord. It's man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. You could call it the supernatural invasion of the God of heaven into human affairs. Isn't that what we need? Divine intervention. It isn't commenced. It's not carried on by human might and power. It's not driven by the internet. It's not driven by people on social media telling each other to go to a certain place because Jesus is there. That's not revival. This has to be emphasized, and I will emphasize it. It's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. 
That's where our focus needs to be. This is where our emphasis must be. Revival is God's sovereign work. The wind bloweth where it listeth. I've heard some of the most nonsensical statements used about revival in my lifetime. Such as, we can have revival when we want to have it if we fulfill the divine conditions. What utter nonsense. What utter nonsense. That is an erroneous statement. There was a man who used to preach in this country by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Finneyism is one of the worst things that's ever hit evangelicalism in this country. Charles Finney, despite any good points that he had, taught that revival was merely the result of the right use of appropriate means. Finney used to say, there are laws of harvest. You go out there and you till the ground, you sow the seed, and then the harvest comes in the fall. And he said, that's how revival works. Now, of course, we don't deny there's preparation involved in revival and prayer for it. Of course, that comes from God himself. But it's absolutely wrong to say that if you plough and sow, you're definitely going to get a bumper harvest. I'm married to a farmer's daughter. I remember many times when I would visit Iowa, obviously being a farming community, that's one subject they talk about all the time. All the time. Oh, that's a lovely patch of corn. That's a nice patch of sweet corn. Or that's a nice patch of soybeans. Or that's an awful smelling lot of hogs. Farming community. Everything's farming out there. Practically. And every farmer will tell you, including my late father-in-law, there are elements that are beyond every farmer's control. Oh, there are things that he can control. He's not going to sit in the house and expect that he's going to get a harvest in the fall if he doesn't work. He's got to get the machinery out. He's got to till the ground. He's got to plough the ground. He's got to sow the seed. But then what does he do? He hopes that the rainfall comes. He hopes that there's the proper weather conditions so that there's not a massive drought that destroys the crop or too much rain where that also destroys the crop. He's dependent on the rain and the snow and the frost and the wind and the sunshine. I remember being told by an Iowa farmer that they like to have a good snow every winter. Because there's nitrogen and various other things in the snow that's good for the soil. And if they don't get that, the crop isn't the same. But the farmer can't make the snow come. The farmer has no control over the influences of heaven, if I could put it that way, that have to be brought to bear on the seed and the soil. Because if those influences are not there in the proper proportion, there will be no harvest. So for me to say X plus Y plus Z will produce a revival without fail is nonsense. We can't make God send a time of refreshing just because we've met certain so-called conditions. You know, the idea that the church can have revival when it wishes, when it pays the price, as I've read in some books, is to cut across both biblical teaching and church history. It isn't so. Now, I will grant you, earnest prayer usually precedes revival. Usually. And it usually isn't a large number of people involved either. Before the 59 awakening, the 59 revival in Ulster, there were three or four people that met in a little schoolhouse that's still standing to this day. Jeremiah Manili and friends who prayed that God might move. The same thing is true of the Fulton Street Revival in 1857-58 in New York City. There was a man who opened the door of his business for a prayer meeting. And when it started, he was on his own. 
And then he was joined by one and maybe two others until God moved in mighty power. This idea that the whole church has to get right with God and then the Lord will send revival as the reward for their holiness, it's false. Because let me tell you this, when the whole church gets right with God, that is revival. Revival has already come. Revivals came in church history, as I have read, precisely because the church generally was not right and was not in a good condition. That's why revival was needed. But when it came, it changed things among the people of God, where there had been carelessness and lethargy and a lack of interest before. That all changed. Because it's a work of God. Revival is a sovereign work of a sovereign God. He sends it when and where and to whom he pleases. Back in the, I was going to say the mid-1800s, in around 1839 and the years following, there were a, a number of moves of God in the United Kingdom, as we would now call it, including Scotland. There is a book on the revivals of religion. It's a series of lectures by preachers of the time. And one of those I was reading by the Reverend Michael Willis, a preacher in Glasgow, Scotland, where I used to minister. And he said this, To humble the pride of man, it has sometimes happened that the same minister, blessed to gain many souls to Christ in one place has proven himself comparatively fruitless in another. And he gives the example of young John Livingston who as a 17 year old was mightily used in revival at a place called the Kirk of Shots, the, the Church of Shots. When 500 people were converted, that was a mighty move of God about 10 years after the event they did some follow-up and found that not one person who had professed faith at that time had backslidden. Not one. John Livingston said he only ever preached truly twice in his life. There was a similar experience he had in a place called Hollywood, which is near Belfast where I'm from, in County Down, where a similar number, about 500, professed faith through one sermon. John Livingston in later life said, I only ever preached twice, really, in my life. Once in Hollywood, and the other at that blessed Kirkushots, when as a 17-year-old who was afraid to preach before all those mighty ministers, was running away from the scene, and on a nearby hill he looked back toward the assembled crowd, and it was as if the Lord said to him, John, if you don't go back and preach as arranged, you'll never preach again. So he turned on his heel and came back. He preached on a, a verse in Ezekiel that talks about rain coming down, showers from heaven. And just as he began to preach about regeneration, about the Spirit of God falling, just at that very time, drops of rain began to fall. Typical Scotland. And people were going for shawls and blankets and coverings to cover their heads. And young Livingston said, Folks, if you're going to cover your heads from a few drops of rain with your shawls and your blankets, what are you going to do in the day when God's wrath is poured out? What will cover you then? And it was said there was such a mighty move of God that day that 500 people were converted. Mighty. But sometime after the Kirk of Shots revival, preaching elsewhere, John Livingston said he found himself without any sense of his master's presence and almost without power of utterance. Why? Why? Because God is sovereign. You think of one man working long and hard in one place with much prayer, he finds little success. Another man has scarcely begun his ministry when he sees great and abundant fruit from his ministry. The same means resulting in different results. The same means in both cases, different results. 
Why? The sovereignty of God. You go along the road and it's raining like mad here. You go five miles down the road and it's dry as a bone. Why? That's how revival is. The sovereignty of God. So revival cannot be had just when we demand it, but when the Lord is pleased to answer our prayers. See, God's not bound to do anything. He isn't. These preachers who think they can hold God to ransom are fools. Revival, you'll find, did not come in the past because large numbers of Christians had, quote-unquote, paid the price or fulfilled the conditions for revival. That is a falsehood. Often it was quite the opposite. The late Dr. Paisley wrote a very good book on the 59 revival, which I've read a number of times. He quoted the uh, Professor John Edgar who gave the testimony of three eminent ministers in regard to the spiritual state of their congregations before the 59 revival. This is what he said. Hitherto, said one minister, our condition was deplorable. The congregation seemed dead to God, formal, cold, prayerless, worldly, and stingy in religious things. Twice I tried to have a prayer meeting of my elders, but failed. For after the fifth or sixth night, I was left alone to pray. There seemed, said a second minister, great coldness and deadness. So deeply did I feel this, that on the Sabbath preceding the revival, I preached from Lamentations 5, verses 20 and 21, and said that I'd preached the gospel faithfully, earnestly and plainly for 11 years, yet it was not known to me that a single individual had ever been converted. The congregation, said a third minister, was in a most unsatisfactory state. In fact, altogether, Laodicean. All along I believed that the faithful use of the means of grace would be followed by their effects, as certainly as the tillage of a field is followed by a good crop, or as diligence in any profession is attended with success. And great was my disappointment. As year after year passed, yet still no fruit, no outpouring of the Spirit, I wondered and was grieved at what seemed so mysterious. What alarmed me most was the indisposition, almost hostility of the people to meetings for prayer. They seemed mostly to think that they were well enough and that I was unnecessarily disturbing them. The minister said, I had never been so desponding or distressed as during the weeks immediately preceding the awakening. I had almost ceased to hope. I felt as if I was almost alone, no one mourning or praying with me. And I told my people, I was appalled at their determination to have no prayer meetings. And that we would not have a drop of the shower of grace which was going around, but we would be left utterly reprobate. And yet in spite of that, God came in power. Jonathan Edwards wrote a little piece called A Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Now why did he call it that? Because like many other ministers, he had worked and labored long and hard and saw nothing practically done. And then the Lord suddenly came and changed things. I was reading in a book about Jonathan Edwards that there were places where there was no preparation whatsoever for revival, where the great personalities, so-called, never visited, and where the preachings were in no way remarkable. But they experienced the same mighty outpourings of power as those places characterized by all three. For example, in the majority of places, there was no preparation at all. See, this runs contrary to a lot of what is written. There are books that contain a lot of good things, such as books by Leonard Ravenhill, But they're dead wrong when they tell you that there has to be all of these conditions met before revival comes. That's nonsense. In these places where he said there was no preparation at all, those places were more rather known for their formalism, death, deadness and depravity than for yearnings for an outpouring of the Spirit of God. In the spring of 1740, it could in no way be said that the colonies here were prepared and yearning for a great spiritual revolution. 
As a matter of fact, the, the very opposite was true. Samuel Blair, the minister of New Londonderry, up in New England, he said, Religion lay, as it were, dying and ready to expire its last breath of life in this part of the visible church. But then there was the second great awakening. See, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God can come and change things in an instant. You know the saying, the darkest hour is sometimes just before the dawn? That has literally been true in church history. There was a great move of God in in Wales, the Principality of Wales. Beautiful little country, but now, like many other places, full of apostasy and darkness. But the conditions prior to a particular revival in Wales were these, as described. The spiritual bankruptcy of the churches, thus deprived of the very cause and meaning of their existence, was the subject of many complaints before the revival broke out. Under the title, The Spiritual State of the Churches, a correspondent to the, I can't pronounce this as a Welsh word, at the turn of the century, the 3rd of January 1900, spoke of low attendances at Sunday services, fellowship and prayer meetings, of a decline in Bible reading and family worship. The remedy proposed was a penitent and humble pleading with God for another divine visitation and revival throughout the land. People were turning away from solid preaching and praying and seeking the church more as a social meeting place for the purpose of enjoyment. That's so 21st century, isn't it? Bazaars, operettas, events for raising funds were on the increase while the spiritual appetite was becoming blunted and atrophied. The established church in Wales complained of religious indifference, one of the chief sins of the time, as being general throughout the land and due to sheer lack of zeal. There was a distinct falling away in church membership too during the last decade of the 19th century. An example of that was a report given at the North Wales Association of the Presbyterian Church of Wales, spring 1900, where a total loss of almost 13,000 people was reported for that period A figure which could not be wholly accounted for by rural depopulation and the drift to the city of Liverpool. But revival came. God came and changed things in a remarkable way. Because you see folks, revival by definition is God's own work. He's sovereign and he's able. I love the quote by Matthew Henry. He said, we cannot make the winds to blow, but we can set the sails of our ship for when it does blow. And that's what I would encourage every believer to do. To seek the Lord. To pray for revival. To take Psalm 85 and verse 6 on your lips regularly. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. See, it's for God's people. First and foremost. And when the Lord does a work among his people, he will undoubtedly do a work among the ungodly. Lord, send us revival. Let it begin now in me, gladly dethroning each rival. Yield I my heart unto thee.